0: Well, th- today we're going to talk about the what's known as the persecution of Diocletian or the Great Persecution, and which was the turning point between the pagan Roman Empire and the Christian Roman Empire that uh, uh, sort of in some ways uh, continues sort of in its last uh, dregs to today, you know, with the, uh, uh, the Christian governments uh, now... Mostly becoming secular governments, but the fact that we even have sort of nominally Christian governments uh, began with the uh, results of this persecution and the uh, ascension of the first Christian emperor uh, Constantine. (coughs) So, in some ways, the uh, the it's kind of a dividing line in history between the time of uh, when Christians were persecuted and the time of the christian uh, christian government or christian empire uh, and it's it's a dividing line as we'll see in in many ways but in particular so this kind of basic break in the in the way the church exists in this world uh, occurs right here with the uh, the persecution beginning in, uh, in 303 Running to well, ultimately it ends at 3:13. But uh, but in other ways, the transition is a more gradual one, and this uh, this this picture, although it is in general terms uh, correct of this of this great transition in the life of the church, uh, is also an oversimplification. The uh, success. It, one of the problems of this simplification is that it tends to give the impression that the uh, triumph of Christianity in the ancient world was the result of a Christian ruler coming into power and replacing a pagan ruler. And so when you had pagan rulers, of course, everybody was pagan, and now there's a Christian ruler, so everybody becomes Christian. But that's a uh, completely uh, wrong understanding of what happened. <coughs> As we earlier had talked about with the apologists, Uh, Christianity uh, was persecuted from the beginning of the church but at the same time the church was attracting uh, educated people into into the church who then turned around and explained Christianity to the pagan society uh, as a fulfillment of the Ideals of the, of the pagan society itself of Greek philosophy of uh, stoicism of the ideals of virtue, uh, that really the Christians were the better fulfillment of that than the pagan where the pagan religions were and uh, it's really this uh, this message and the example of the Christians uh, in their charitable works that actually converted the Roman Empire to Christianity the Uh, change of government here uh, is really significant just in that itself. It was where the the government finally essentially acknowledged the conversion of Christianity uh, rather than trying to fight it. And and actually the persecution itself uh, existed for ten years, which is a long time, but but it does not really characterize all of the pre-Constantinian period. In fact, we, had, uh, we, we talked about some of the persecutions, but one of the r- remarkable things is that the persecutions occur so infrequently. And uh, we had uh, uh, persecutions in France around 177. We had the Decian persecution in 250. Uh, we heard about it in, in Rome and in Carthage. But <coughs> this was a time... Uh, when, in one way, when the Roman society was undergoing an enormous transition, but this transition mostly did not include the persecution of Christians. Uh, when, again, when we're talking about the, the change from the pagan Roman Empire to the Christian Roman Empire, in one way, it's correct to see this as sort of the beginning of the Middle Ages. You know, with the Middle Ages being sort of that Christ, Christian period of our history, and <coughs> Diocletian is kind of the end of the uh, the Roman, the pagan Roman Empire. Now, some people have uh, interpreted that in sort of a negative way because, it, in some ways, the, there were periods in which the Roman Empire was very wealthy and uh, open society with a lot of uh, intellectual achievement and such. And the Middle Ages, especially in the West, certain during the Dark Ages, uh, empire, Western Europe was very poor. It was uh, had very little uh, resources. And some have said, huh, well, that's the change." You see, you go from a nice pagan empire where they idealized that it was everyone was it was uh, very educated and it was a very wealthy society, and then you become Christian. The next thing you know, uh, you have all this poverty. But and uh, and And serfdom and such, but what actually the ch- the transition in the structure of society uh, really began in the period of crisis before diocletian the uh, uh, from about we had started with the uh, Decian persecution in two fifty, but the period from two fifty to three hundred was one where uh, the Roman empire was placed under great pressure from foreign invasions along the Danube River, uh, the Rhine River and in, in uh, Persia, from Persia, that that caused the old society in a sense to uh, be transformed into more of what we think of in terms of the Middle Ages. Uh, the cities uh, shrank down, large open unwalled cities were replaced by very small uh, walled cities. The, uh, at some t- point during this time, the uh, Coinage was temporarily replaced by barter system when the Roman Empire wasn't able to keep up with the needs for, uh, for money. The uh, uh, empire became uh, kind of more, uh, re- sort of re- religiously uniform. Attempt to kind of invest sort of religious significance to the to the ruler to kind of. Uh, Keep a more solid uh, front against so, you know, so kind of this less, perhaps less tolerance, and uh, also this terrible, t- crushing taxation, and uh, also the uh, requirement of, of people not to be uh, the society becoming less mobile, that you are required to follow the occupation of your father. Uh, this all happened really uh, in the period prior to the persecution. That so, the, in a way, the, the beginnings of serfdom, all these, all these things that we associate with the Middle Ages, uh, occurred because the Roman Empire, under this tremendous stress, which caused them essentially to have to double the size of their army and uh, impoverish great areas of the, of the empire, uh, broke down the, the society that was we think of as sort of the classical Roman society and produced a much more rigid and uh, defensively oriented society in a much poorer environment. And it was this all occurred at the end of the pagan period. And then the conversion to Christianity sort of occurred afterwards. And in that sense, the the two transitions don't really uh, have anything to do with each other. And then also our picture of the Middle Ages as this uh, kind of poor backwards time really actually has more to do with the period of the uh, later, with the uh, Viking conquests after 800, uh, because the early Middle Ages, in fact, the uh, Roman civilization and the Church Fathers and all that, you know, continued right on through the fall of the Western Roman Empire, uh, and so it wasn't, again, it wasn't Christianity that caused the uh, decline, but rather the, just uh, the fact that the West in the later Middle Ages was being attacked by, while well, the Muslims cut off the, uh, the trade routes with the, with the East and the Vikings were destroying the cities on the coast. So uh, naturally you ended up with a more rural society. But okay, to get back to the persecution itself, um, <coughs> the other kind of uh, factor that I would, we talked about, I was talking about the apologists and how the Christianization of society was already occurring even with all of this transition going on, and transition actually which in many ways led to a greater intolerance of diversity, uh, you still had in fact an increasing influence of Christianity in, in, the, uh, in the empire. And Diocletian himself was uh, someone who, he was an emperor for 20 years approximately before the, the persecution started and his, uh, his uh, imperial household in uh, Nicomedia here, right across from uh, the future Constantinople which was his capital uh, many of his, uh, his uh, chamberlain and uh, many of his close uh, personal servants and uh, court officials were Christians uh, many of the, the army all over the Roman Empire was, was full of Christians and the, this was not uh, done secretly, but it, because the, uh, the army and the, and the civil government, because it was a pagan country, a lot of the formalities of these offices and positions had, had pagan ceremonies connected to them. The emperors, uh, Diocletian and the earlier emperors, consciously uh, made those ceremonies uh, non-obligatory for Christians, so that a Christian could have a high civil office and was exempted from having to participate in those pagan ceremonies. So this was not that Christians were secretly infiltrating here and there, but that the society, the imperial government, was welcoming Christian participation in all aspects of military and civil life. There were, um, in the Council of Martims you'll hear about you know, uh, Christian centurions and, uh, as well as Christian soldiers, so they were just... Uh, they were everywhere, and, and earlier, you know, we saw uh, the time of Origin, you know, that the uh, correspondence with the Emperor uh, Philip the Arabian and his wife, and Origin visiting with the mother of an earlier emperor. In this case, uh, it's it's believed that that Diocletian's mother and sister were somehow uh, connected to the Christian Church. Whether the, it doesn't seem that they were necessarily members, but that perhaps they were catechumens or People considering becoming members. The other, uh, so you have. That's pretty good. Particularly when the persecutions are going on. Well, well, this was before the persecution. So, uh, Diocletian. Well, because this he ruled for 20 years, filling everything around him with Christians. uh, So his wife and and daughter, and uh, and then when uh, Diocletian, one of the kind of. aspects of his rule was that he decided to divide the Roman Empire up into four sections and each would have, uh, well, they had two uh, emperors and two Caesars that would uh, each have a section that way. This would prevent revolts because one of the problems in this uh, sort of dark period before Diocletian was that the army generals were constantly rebelling. So wherever the emperor wasn't, the general over there would decide to become emperor. So, uh, Diocletian had as one of his uh, partners uh, someone called Constantius, whose uh, wife was uh, Helena, the uh, uh, Empress Helen, who was the mother of Constantine. She also is Christian. Okay. So within the, uh, the hierarchy at this point of the imperial families, we have one definite Christian and two potential you know Christians uh, uh, being in the highest offices now it doesn't seem in that circumstance that we'd be getting ready to look at the biggest persecution in perhaps Christian history but it it did happen, and the reason was uh, because of largely one person who was, who was the uh, Caesar in the uh, in the east whose name was Galerius and uh, he was the son of a uh, pagan priestess and was a general who fought uh, against the Persians and the emperor Diocletian had raised him to the rank of of, uh, Caesar to be part of this uh, group of four that would rule the different areas. Galerius was a very anti-Christian. He uh, wanted to uh, revive paganism, and he was he wanted to have uh, paganism restored as the kind of mandatory religion of the empire. In one way, uh, kind of following through with this this sort of move to toward totalitarianism. In a way that uh, you know, the, this period was going through with the uh, with controlling the economy, controlling uh, Employment and every, you know, aspects of people's lives as a way of trying to deal with the great stress was that you, you know, increasing government control. But he uh, had a problem, which was uh, two problems. One was that a large part of the Eastern Empire was heavily Christian. And the second was that the other emperors, his uh, senior emperor, was not interested in persecuting Christians. In fact, had had the uh, Christians in his government. So Galerius uh had to proceed slowly and kind of uh, kind of gradually try to force uh, Diocletian to go along with the persecution and I just before i go further, I just wanted to show you the pictures of some of these people uh, This is Diocletian here on you yeah that's a picture of him and uh yeah, okay. I don't know. If you can see him, but Yeah, and then um uh, there's another one here uh where the second one is this Constantius. Uh you can look at that. That's But what Galerius started at first was he because of course he was a, he was in Caesar in charge of a section of the empire uh and some armies what he started doing was uh removing the special exceptions because right now officially uh, the rules were that emperors and soldiers had to you know there were all these pagan ceremonies but they were Christians had kind of been allowed to not have to do them so what Galerius starts doing is reinstituting these certain ceremonies and requiring them and this caused in the army at first and this caused uh, a lot of Christians to give up their their position—they just sort of—if you wanted to remain a, a, a soldier, well, then you either had to go through the ceremony, or then you—or you—or you were dishonorably discharged. And so many Christians at that point uh, gave—you know—left the army, and and the same with uh, people of, of rank and uh, uh, civil rank. If they—you know—were in the government, they—they—he was kind of starting to force them out. Uh, on the side, but not uh succeeding in kind of causing a general persecution in general, uh, uh not really giving not people didn't realize that there was this was going to develop into something more. What kind of a ceremony we call it a pagan ceremony? Yes, pagan ceremony in other words to uh take part in a sacrifice or receive something that as part of uh you know your are receiving a reward world, or, or exactly. well Christians are, yeah and, and so um so Galerius then in 303 goes to visit uh Diocletian in Nicomedia and begins to and they spend the winter together and he's kind of working on him to try to get him to to agree to some kind of edict and what the f- the first edict that comes out is against uh, the the uh, church buildings now this uh this uh, is also something where we sometimes have uh, some misconceptions, which is that we think, you know, I mean, cor- partly correctly, that uh, the Christians did meet in catacombs at times in, in the uh, pre Constantinian period, but the, uh, for most of the time they didn't. Actually, this was only during uh, persecutions or uh, for funerals, but they, the, uh, you know, we think that there were house churches, but the all, this was already Christianity, now almost 300 years old. Uh, ch- public church buildings were already not only being built, but very large, prominent ones. And uh, when we find out that the emperors of Diocletian and Galerius, from their palace, uh, what they'll do is they will order the destruction of the church and they will sit in the palace and watch the church be destroyed. Which means that the palace—I uh, mean, the church—is not off in some remote, nondescript area. The church is perhaps on the other side of the square from the palace, and there's a prominent building. Uh, so, the, uh, if, if in the imperial capital the church building is right by the palace, then you can imagine in all the other places that uh, the churches, again, you know, were were public. Yes. This is uh, hilarious, and was Galerius like. A Really zealous pagan, or was was he just like I really hate the Christians? Well, perhaps both. Yeah, but it was it was a kind of zeal for paganism and wanting to uh, enforce perhaps a conservative return to the past to try to uh, shore up you know kind of the virtue of the Roman Empire against uh, enemies, so that there would be uh, to avoid. Uh, any dissension or something in the empire, but not although that there wasn't any as far as the christians were were loyally participating in the army and the government, but this way but uh, I guess it's a temptation when you're uh in charge of something to want to make everyone follow uh uniformly but the um, I would to read you. From Eusebius, I should just mention, I guess, the um, we have for this persecution. There's some excellent sources. Uh, of course, there's the Acts of the martyrs themselves, which are the accounts of usually the transcripts of the trials, and uh, that give you, you know, what exactly what happened at each trial. But on a broader sense, there were two uh, church historians present during this persecution. The first is uh, someone we're familiar with, Eusebius. Who lived in uh, in Palestine in Caesarea down here, and he was a, the author of our uh, church history book, uh, first church's first church history book that's still around. Uh, he was witnessed the uh, persecutions himself, and the other is Lactantius, who wrote a book called The Death of the Persecutors, um, and also uh, was a witness. I believe he may have been even in Nicomedia during the persecutions, but he uh, describes also in detail what was going on in the government during this time. <coughs> so, I wanted to read to you uh, Eusebius's description of the church on the, uh, at the beginning of the persecution. Um, well, this part I already talked about, but, uh, But it talks about how the uh, uh, what approbation the rulers in every church unmistakably won, that was the, the the bishops won from all the procurators and governors. How could one describe those mass meetings, the enormous gatherings in every city, and the remarkable congregations in places of worship? No longer satisfied with the old buildings, uh, the churches raised from the foundations in all cities, uh, church buildings that were spacious in plan. Things went forward with the times and expanded at a daily increasing rate. So we have a picture of a, of a church which is growing. There's huge gatherings and, and large church buildings uh, being established. And we don't see that today because, of course, when we look back, uh, you know, all the major church buildings that you go to Europe and you visit really go back to the time of Constantine. And that's because the you know romans uh the edict which Galerius uh gets Diocletian to agree to is to destroy the church buildings is the first thing, and so all these uh you know and even the big buildings that are destroyed were even the new buildings because there were even so there were even smaller buildings before that but uh, except for archaeology we just don't have those so we we all what we're seeing is the rebuilding of these buildings, but it is give you sort of a false impression like that uh you know, uh, Christianity on a sort of large public scale begins with Constantine, whereas in fact it was rebuilding of, of large public buildings that were already there. The second aspect of the of the uh, early persecution was the destruction of the scriptures, and uh, again, this affects how we see things today, uh, because most of the uh, early uh, Manuscripts that we have again come from the Constantine, post Constantinian period. So if you look back at the history of the scriptures, the textual history, you know, you're really looking back to here. And you would be sort of the impression well, how do we really know what was going on prior? Fortunately, there are uh, fragments that we pull up mostly from Egypt that can confirm uh, almost really to the first century, you know, that our texts are are authentic. But but we would sort of get the impression, well, everything must have been very poor. You know. The really Church must not have really had very much before Constantine came along. But actually, when we read the accounts of the persecution, uh, when the uh, persecutors would come, and the, church, the books weren't actually normally kept in the church, they were kept in the homes of the readers. That was the reader's job, was to have a little library. And in one, uh, one city... Between the home of the various readers, they collected 39 uh, manuscripts—not necessarily all scriptural, but scripture and, uh, let's say, church fathers' writings and things. So, uh, this also explains why, when we look at the writings of the church fathers, so many—I mean, most of our church fathers' library comes from—you know—it's in that. If you look at those things, it's the post-Nicene volumes. I mean, there are some pre—we have some pre-Nicene, but. It's because, you know, just uh, probably uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of manuscripts were destroyed at that time. And so, when actually, this is the interesting thing with Eusebius. What he does is he, I mean, all we have a very detailed account of early church history here. That if we had to depend on the books that he used, if he hadn't written this, we would know very little about what happened uh, prior to Constantine, because most of the sources he quotes uh, not everyone but a large number of them no longer exist and so he was uh, he was at he lived where the origin had his library in Caesarea and he was aware that you know a large portion of our of the Christian literary inheritance was being destroyed and so he took the trouble to go around and collect what was there and put it all together into a systematic history so that uh, we now have a record because uh so he was uh, sort of someone preserving the past in, in a time of, of great wreckage when, when the lot was being destroyed. The uh the third uh aspect was the arrest of the of the clergy. Now actually these I was a second on that. Okay, so those first two was that and also if you were a uh, a civil uh Servant, if you worked in the government, you had to. If you wanted to re- maintain your job, you would uh, do sacrifice to pagan idols, or uh, you. If you were an aristocrat, uh, you would. You know, if you had a title position, you would. You would lose your position if you didn't. Uh, if you didn't go along. So this is kind of a change because so much of the. Uh, of the empire was Christian and now under Galerius Diocletian sort of agrees to this but interestingly the initial uh, act tried to avoid uh, bloodshed and it's even described like when uh, some of the bishops were arrested and and, uh, the requirement was that they had to uh, sacrifice that a lot of the governors would just have the troops kind of drag them up to the altar and then mark them as sacrificed and let them go Without you know so they weren't, they were not trying to kill all these bishops. what they were just trying to do is uh fulfill the orders, and even where the person is you know shouting out that they're a Christian, well, okay, you know he's here, so, so they take him and let him go and uh, and they would uh so they, they seemed to be going to a lot of trouble not to. Diocletian, di- Diocletian you know did not want to be involved in a, any kind of uh bloody thing now what happened was Though that there were several things that happened. One is that a, uh, when, when this edict was put up, one of the uh, prominent Christians in the city, or maybe even someone in the government, saw the edict uh, put up and uh, went up and tore it, tore it up and threw it down. <laughs> and uh, so he was arrested, you know, and, and uh, put to death for that. But uh, then uh, there was uh, two fires that took place in the imperial palace. And Galerius said, ah, see, it's the Christians that are trying to kill you uh, because of this. And so uh, Diocletian apparently became frightened and decided that the Christians were now uh, too dangerous. And so he, he uh, began a, a kind of uh, uh, reprisals against the Christians in, in Nicomedia. But uh, the Christian authors contend that really it was Galerius who, with his suite, was staying, with the, staying in the palace also, uh, who engineered the fires as a way of getting Diocletian to agree to the persecutions. But, of course, uh, it's, we don't really know, but we, you know, that's, that's the... But, but anyway, uh, Diocletian considered that probably the Christians had done it, so he uh, began the purge of his uh, household, all the, uh, the government people around him in the palace, uh, requiring them all to sacrifice and when they didn't, which was they didn't, uh, they wouldn't agree to it, uh, to torture them until they did. And again, the uh, often the, the pagan purpose wasn't just to kill all the Christians initially, although in this persecution it comes to that, but uh, but to just force them to stop being Christian or to obey the government's rule. And so the, uh, there were tortures where the, they were hung up and whipped and, and had vinegar poured on their wounds and and then they would uh, they would roast them little you know, parts of their body uh, over a cooking stove to uh, not to kill them right away, but to gradually try to, uh, to force them to give in. But the uh, imperial officials were also very devout Christians and, and didn't give in, and so they were eventually all killed. At this point, he uh, Diocletian requires because of his fear he requires his wife and daughter to sacrifice and they did so they uh, uh whatever their connection with the church was at that point they uh either apostatized or or decided to stop uh pursuing their interest in Christianity and the daughter i think ultimately is uh, diocletian gives his daughter in marriage to galerius and that i don't know if that all had something to do with it either but uh, cause, uh he, if she was interested in Christianity he wouldn't have like that very much, but uh, but so in this case they stop they leave they go back to paganism, but the uh, church official the court officials don't and there's a there was actually a general massacre of all the Christians in uh, Nicomedia because of the uh, the fires. <coughs> now. A little later, there were some rebellions in the east, that, uh, in Syria and Cappadocia, that appear unconnected with Christianity. They're just local troops uh, complaining, that, well, making their commanders become emperors. So. But uh, this leads, uh, Galerius kind of uses that to, to prevail on the emperor, Diocletian, to agree to another uh, increase of the persecution, which is the arrest of all clergy. Uh, Which uh, Eusebius describes that all the the jails, which um, you know that there wasn't any room for criminals because all the jails became filled with all these uh, bishops, priests, and deacons and and readers were all stuffed in the jails, and then they were given the choice of uh, of they could be released as soon as they as soon as they offered a sacrifice, or they would be tortured until they did. And this began kind of the uh, first period of of, uh, you know very bloody uh, persecutions in the East, especially. And then uh, the Emperor Diocletian became ill in 304, and during his illness, uh, the Emperor Galerius took over more control and and offered and and spread that to uh, all Christians, uh, basically all people. They used the census, the tax lists require everyone to uh, almost sacrifice and this of course uh, theoretically uh, you know could have meant the complete extermination of, of Christianity if everyone had been caught and everyone had been forced to um, either to to sacrifice or else be put to death uh, and it almost in some parts of the of the Empire it almost did uh, re- result in the total extermination but Uh, Several things kept this from happening. One was that a lot of people uh, uh, ran away. (laughs) They saw this was going to happen and they uh, took off. And this is where, uh, now St. Anthony is already living in the desert here, and there are a six, but a lot of people started moving out into the wilderness areas to escape from the government uh, uh, persecution. Persecution. Uh, we have a lot, record of a lot of people moving into Armenia, which was already a Christian country. A lot of uh, Roman Christians fleeing to Armenia and to the Persian Empire, which wasn't Persia wasn't Christian, but they were willing to receive uh, allies. You know, uh, So there was that kind of escape. Then there was also uh, uh, some who, well, since you, what you had to have was a little piece of paper that said that you had sacrificed uh, a lot of Christians figured out ways to get that piece of paper without actually sacrificing. Now, the first thing uh, the church officially, of course, has no problem with people f- fleeing. And uh, although uh, some of the, the rigorous schisms, like the, the Miletian schism, uh, denounced that and they said no, you, no one, no Christian should flee. Everyone should just sort of volunteer to be martyred. But uh, but the church. Said no, you could flee. But if you go and you buy a certificate that says that you sacrificed, there was a uh, a penance for that, but a small uh, penance. And so then other kind of, and then of course there were those who just um, got scared and, and went and sacrificed. And there was that was more severe. Yes. I'm sorry. What schism? Uh, the schism miletius of. What's uh, that characteristic of the Donatists? Well, the Donatists. Maybe they they were they were promoted martyr. Yeah, they were a rigorous schism. But the schism there actually had to do with um it was a little more complicated. Whereas the Miletian schism actually Miletius broke from the patriarch because the patriarch had given permission that no one no one was supposed to be denied communion because they had fled. And Miletius said, Well that means that the Patriarchs apostasized He's no longer patriarch. I'm the patriarch now, <laughs> and he appointed all his own clergy. But that's uh, but that was a uh, mistake. But that uh, that's the same. You have a similar problem when the uh, Cyprian, uh, the persecution of 250, where you have a kind of rigorous response, is that basically everybody who doesn't go through with that, it, you know, uh, in that case, it was all who lapsed that they couldn't be. Re- they're not allowed to be re- forgiven which the church rejected also. But uh, So the other uh, strange thing is that it seems like some parts of the population were more persecuted than others. Uh, Anthony the Great, when the persecution is going on in Alexandria, Anthony comes down to the city and c- encourages the, the martyrs. And he's there at the court. But nobody, for some reason, they never arrested him and, and uh, tortured him. But apparently... It was because he's a, a peasant, you know, been living out in the desert, and they just uh, they didn't bother with him. Whereas the uh, the people in the city were the ones that they were uh, executing, so they, they must have had some kind of social uh, parameters for their executions. We have a, there's lots of awful lot of people were killed in this time. Oh, the other the other difference is that Galerius was the one most interested in this persecution. So the areas where he ruled uh, were very uh, thoroughly uh, persecuted. Uh, there was also uh, Maximin over here uh, who did some persecutions too. There were some; uh, it wasn't as long, uh, but it, there were some, pers- you know, persecutions, especially in North Africa. Many uh, Christians were killed. But the area where Constantius ruled in uh, Gaul and Britain uh, it's even d- some people will say, well, he destroyed some of the church buildings, but uh, although Eusebius says that he didn't, but there was uh, apparently very little if any actual martyrdoms in those areas uh, and apparently Constantius just uh, did not really enforce the uh, the rules uh, of Diocletian, so even though officially they were all the same empire, and Diocletian was the senior emperor but uh, so Christians had ways some in some places to escape and then also the the Christians themselves of course didn't see the main objective as being to escape. they saw the main objective as being to remain faithful uh on this kind of the you know the real war is not uh against the earthly emperors, but it's against the devil whose objective is the the uh, uh to t- take away the salvation of the Christian not not just so much to take away his life and uh, I just wanted to read you a small section of uh, a little section to illustrate uh, some of the extent of this well some of the descriptions are pretty uh, uh, well there are all different ways that they were torturing people to death uh, some very horrible uh, things they were doing uh, that uh you know you you probably you wouldn't want to imagine even what uh the things they were doing to uh, uh you know using the rack of course to stretch people apart and uh pouring boy burning lead on them and all kinds of things to uh to that uh and not just men but you know men women and sometimes children uh, to get them to try to agree to sacrifice and then um the thing that that uh Distinguishes this persecution is that uh, the length of time that it takes takes place. It, it begins 303. this this uh, last uh, where everyone had to segregate that started at 304, and the uh, tortures to death kind of went on as a policy till 308. So you have uh, well, you know, the clergy was in 303. 308, so five years of solid uh, persecution. And this is uh, uh, Eusebius' description of what was going on in Caesarea uh, about how it was tearing people apart and all these things. In this way, they carried on, for a few, not for a few days or weeks, but year after year, sometimes 10 or more, sometimes over 20 were put to death. At other times, at least thirty, and at yet others, not not far short of sixty, and there were occasions when, on a single day, a hundred men, as well as women and little children, were killed. Condemned to a succession of ever-changing punishments, because they weren't just being killed outright, but they were trying, they were torturing them. To... I was in these, I was in these places, and I saw many of the executions for myself. Some of the victims suffered death by beheading; others, punishment by fire. So many were killed on a single day that the axe, blunted and worn out by the slaughter, was broken in pieces, while the exhausted executioners had to be periodically relieved. All the time I observed a most wonderful eagerness and a truly divine power and enthusiasm in those who had put their trust in the Christ of God. No sooner had the first batch been sentenced than others from every side would jump onto the platform in front of the judge and proclaim themselves Christians. They paid no heed to torture in all its terrifying forms, but undoubtedly spoke boldly, undaunted, spoke boldly of their devotion to the God of the universe, and with joy, laughter, and gaiety received the final sentence of death. They sang and sent up hymns of thanksgiving to the God of the universe till their very last breath. Um, he goes on, he gives a lot, there's a lot of uh, accounts of individual people, but I think uh, there's two things. One is the. Uh, just the extent if you're talking about you know 30, 60, 100 people a day for a period of uh, four or five years in one place you're talking about a lot of people that's uh, and so one of the part of this is just that there's an awful lot of Christians uh, you know, there's thousands and thousands of Christians and there are thousands of Christians uh, being killed and yet when the persecution enter, ends the uh, the population you know you have a Christian empire so so it, you would think that you know, it wouldn't take very many days before you didn't have any Christians left but actually that didn't happen. Uh, it's also kind of interesting so Eusebius is there watching all this but somehow he uh, was not maybe he was younger or something but he wasn't too much younger because he was uh, an adult at the time of Constantine a few years later and, and actually was prominent enough that he interviewed, personally interviewed Constantine for some parts of his book. But uh, somehow... Escaped. Now, uh, this goes on for a while, and uh, several things happen. One is the uh, Diocletian uh, 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 retires in 305, and uh, after his retirement, uh, 306 Constantius dies, and his son Constantine. Uh, because Emperor, kind of against Galerius' uh, will, but the troops in uh, England proclaim Constantine, and so uh, Galerius has to sort of go along with it. But uh, they also, somehow, Galerius even sort of starts to get tired of, uh, you know, five years or four or five years of just constantly killing everybody, and uh, there's apparently some. Uh, Opposition building up even among in his own you know in the government like why are we doing all this? So they decided in 308 to uh, to exercise some uh, clemency, and they um, started to send the people who were who would not uh, submit to the mines. Uh, But the uh, going to the mines was not so great either because they would uh, burn out your uh, right eye. And uh, cut the tendons in your left foot uh, when you were condemned to the mines, so I guess so that you couldn't run away. And then they, the mines, the camp, were camps sort of out in the desert where they'd be out digging. And uh, so these places became uh, great centers of Christians, with full of uh, bishops and <laughs> people out there. And they, in some initially, the uh, they, uh, Christians were allowed to have services. They were actually they were forbidden to have services in the empire, but apparently in the mines they were able to start. Uh, doing things, but then the government uh, put a stop to that and was executing uh, some of the bishops to kind of try to keep a lid on that but uh, but ultimately, in uh, three eleven uh, this even comes to an end because the Emperor Galerius uh, becomes very ill with a, a strange disease uh, well some worms. And he's all bloated with these worms, and he's—it's uh, uh, the disease by which Herod the Great died, and uh, who else? Some other famous people, like—pardon? How do you know this? Well, the descriptions. I mean, the same. Yeah, I mean, we don't know uh, necessarily uh, medically, but we know the description of the, the bloating, the worms, and the rotting of the flesh inside, and uh, that the people couldn't even get near him because the stink was so bad, and. Uh, death without being being yeah. Yet, yet. yeah and uh, somehow that uh, convinced Galerius that perhaps uh, he was on the wrong track and he agreed to uh, to end the persecution and he so he sent out an order but it's an interesting order because it explains his motivations for why he started the persecution as well as uh, that he's now you know kind of letting them letting them Get away with this. Um, all right. Uh, we have desired hitherto that every deficiency should be made good in accordance with established law and the public order of Rome. And we made provision for this that the Christians who had abandoned the convictions of their own forefathers should return to sound ideas. So... Uh, so it's his motivation for the persecution was the kind of conservatism that could be forced the people to uh, keep to their ancestral religion. For, for through some perverse reasoning, such arrogance and folly had seized and possessed them that they refused to follow the path trodden by earlier generations and perhaps blazed long ago by their own ancestors and made their own laws to suit their own ideas and individual tastes and observed these and held various meetings in various places. Consequently, when we issued an order to the effect that they were to go back to the practices established by the ancients, many of them found themselves in great danger, and many were proceeded against and punished with death in many forms. Most of them indeed persisted in the same folly, and we saw that they were neither paying to the gods in heaven the worship that is their due, nor giving any honor to the God of the Christians. So, so it's kind of interesting. So, okay, we're trying to get them to worship their, the traditional gods. So they're not doing that. But not, now, you know, not only are they not worshiping the traditional gods, but because, of course, all the services are forbidden, they're not even worshiping the Christian gods. So um, perhaps they would have been allowed to, in his mind, if they had been willing to worship the pagan gods as well. So in view of our benevolence and the established custom by which we invariably grant pardon to all men uh, of course, this is <laughs> after let's uh, a little ironic after all these years of, uh, but we have thought proper in this matter also to extend our clemency most gladly, so that Christians may again exist and rebuild the houses in which they used to meet, on condition that they do nothing contrary to public order. Um, Let's see. In, in further letter, we shall explain, look at it. In, or, in view of this, our clemency, they are duty-bound to beseech their own God for our security, that of the state and of themselves, in every way that the state may be preserved in health and that they may be able to live free from anxiety in their own homes. Uh, so, it's... Uh, it's kind of funny that well that you know this so very nice uh, emperor after all these years of killing everybody now he wants to uh, to let them live. Uh, but it's an interesting thing is that the persecution ends in 311, prior to uh, Constantine. See, now so officially you know all the people are freed, but Galerius uh, he dies anyway from the disease, and his. Uh, Successor was someone named uh, uh, Daya, who took the name Maximin Daya. Uh, he also, though, is someone who doesn't like the Christians, and so he, uh, on a less universal scale, kind of starts persecuting again. And actually, that's when the patriarch Peter of Alexandria, after being let go, was again arrested and, and put to death. Um, he, he kind of did sort of spor- sporadic. Uh, Executions of, of prominent Christians, uh, but meanwhile, Constantine had become emperor in the West with uh, Licinius, and they now decided to. Uh, well, earlier they had fought against uh, uh, Maximin's son, uh, Maxentius, in 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 Italy, who uh, was not persecuting as much as Galerius was, but still. Uh, wasn't, and Constantine when he marched down to Italy this is where he had this vision of the cross uh, that he sees in the sky and then he hears the words conquer in this sign and so when he, he comes and he wins the battle takes over Rome they, there's this uh, edict uh, of toleration the edict, uh, called the Edict of Milan which uh, uh, Milan's up here in uh, 312 I believe it, sorry just check that's right yes um, well no sorry 313 the battle's 312 but the edict is 313 and that officially uh, grants Christians toleration and then uh, then they go to war against Dan in the east and when he's defeated then ultimately uh, well Constantine and Licinius initially divide the empire and then eventually Constantine takes over the whole thing but uh this is when the, the the persecution ends, and we begin uh, kind of the history that we have. We're sort of more familiar with uh, historically because it has. We've now, from the time of Constantine, uh, have the uh, rebuilding of everything, and the you know again the, the all of the Christian uh, records. And although there's some persecutions going on, I mean essentially that Christian uh, inheritance continues down to today intact. You know, a lot of those uh, those churches that that were built uh still exist and the records and everything. I have um a, a coin of uh, Constantine if you want to take a picture take a look at it. This is a this is a real one and you can kinda see him but it's it's got plastic on it, you have to look but is there any questions? I think that's was Eusebius a uh, Christian? Yes. Yes, he is. Yeah, he's um, ultimately uh, the bishop of Caesarea, yeah, so. as well as a uh, yeah. That well was a great scholar too. Uh, God preserved is what I observed in this because he should have been nailed, but he I'm sure. Yes, well, actually, and that's with Saint Anthony too. I mean, he's there and yeah. somehow survived that yeah. and uh, lived. It's an interesting thing with Saint Anthony, uh, which I'll say I'll talk to him another time, but that that he was already living in the deserts as an ascetic and that there were many ascetics living in Egypt. (coughs) When he was a a young man going out to live in the desert, there were already many elders living along the edges of the Nile Valley. Uh, So we sometimes think of all all of this again developing afterwards. Some people say, well, monasticism developed because there was no longer opportunity for martyrdom. But in fact, the... the, uh, Monasticism actually developed before him. Uh, a curious thing is that uh, one of when Maxim was fighting against uh, Constantine, he was drafting soldiers from southern Egypt, and one of the soldiers was a pagan uh, named Pakom who, as they were coming up, you know, and being drafted, they uh, there were people coming out along the way, bringing uh, food, you know, for the for the draftees because they didn't have it, you know, anything. And he asked, well, who are, who are these people you know, giving us food as we we're traveling?" And so he said, "Oh well, that's the Christians. They always do that. You know They're always helping everybody. And so even after you know all these years of, of persecution and all these people being killed, uh, and a pagan emperor is drafting soldiers to go fight against uh, Constantine and uh, Christian you know such a Christian emperor, who, although not baptized till later, uh, the Christians are there coming out to to bring food for the, for the draftees and uh, Pacom was so impressed with this that when the war ended he became a Christian himself and went back and founded uh, the first Cenobitic monastery in southern Egypt and became known as Saint Pacomius. and so we uh, but that was someone sort of was part of this whole uh, war but actually someone very unlikely you would never really think that uh, the, uh, the pagan soldiers in the taking an emperor's army would become kind of a founder of a type of monasticism, but that's what happened. Yeah. Any other questions? Okay. I think St. Nancy started with uh, what we understand as monasticism, right? Well, no. Uh, he's often called the first uh, hermit. Well, not really. I mean, Yeah, we, he's he's, quite, he's sort of the first uh, hermit that we know about but in his life it's obvious that there are all these other people uh, kind of living out in huts, uh, living as monastics although uh, so, so it uh, seems uh, like in uh, some sort wrote about him and that's why Yeah, and so, so we know about him, right that's mm-hmm. he, so he's famous but even, even in that book you, you can see that, that's, that he's obviously not the first person it's interesting too that a lot of people always thought all the people flocking out to him was because of the intense attraction to the uh, the uh, holiness of the austerity, you know, uh-huh. the, and know. turns out they were many of them. In this case, were fleeing murder in the cities and the wilderness looked like a good deal compared to that I mean, so well it's a, a little bit of uh, both i mean they were fleeing to the wilderness where he was he was in a remote actually during the persecution he came he came to Alexandria, so the people who joined anthony uh, probably were not joining him at the time of the persecution because he that 's when he was back in the in the town but uh but they—I uh, mean, a lot, many people did flee to the wilderness. But they, uh, but his—the people who obviously joined him were people who wanted to live a very austere life after uh, the persecution was over, and, and maybe, perhaps, before. I think there might have been some that were visiting him earlier. Yes. Isn't uh, isn't sino- does Cynobite sino- by- refer to genre of monasticism? Yes, that's right. Also hermetic. So Cenobius would have been the founder of that. Oh, no, say Pacomius was the founder of cenobitic. Semitic means it's uh, kini, a common, uh, bios, life, common life monasticism, meaning a community. And uh, heramidic is from the word heramos, which means uh, desert. So desert meaning you're living by yourself. Those are two contraries. Yeah, two different types, right, Uh yeah.